This is the coolest show brought to you by Hip Hop Caucuses. Think 100%. It's the coolest show you know. Keep the culture connected. It's the coolest show you know. In your ear, yeah, respect the expert level information, entertainment, education. Rev here, we got you covered as you hit your destination. Climate rules everything around me. Cream. For those who lost focus, close your eyes and just dream. Open your third eye, now the world is your off. Coolest, coolest show you know. It's the Hip Hop Caucus. I am excited for this interview for so many reasons. One, there are many people who I am just honored to just be in their presence and be with them. And that is the person I'm talking to right now, and that is Dr. Bernice King. Dr. King, how are you doing today? I'm wonderful. How are you? You know, I'm doing well. It's a lot going on in the world, though. It's a lot, it's a lot going on right, right now. Um, well, you know, I, I would say there's always a lot going on in the world. <laughs> yeah, that's well, that, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I, 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 I think the reason there's a lot going on for some people is because they kind of been detached, and once you mm, kind of wake up, you realize it's been going on. Mm, mm. Yeah. Well, you know, let's talk about that. Well, first, for folks who 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 don't know, let me just say a little bit of bio, a little background. Uh, Dr. Bernice King is the CEO of the Martin Luther King Jr. Center for Nonviolent Social Change, the King Center, which does amazing work. I've had the honor and the privilege um, for, for working with her. Uh, and I just want to say that uh, she is the daughter of Coretta and Martin Luther King Jr. And I want to leave with this. I don't know if you know this story, but um, when I was a young activist, uh, and back in, I guess, one of the 30th anniversary of the March on Washington, I was a, I was SCA president at the University of the District of Columbia. And they had asked the SCA presidents to be a part. And myself, uh, actually, Stacey Abrams was one of the other SCA presidents who came up and many, many others. And your mother, uh, Coretta Scott King, was there with Walter Fauntroy. And I just got to tell you, as a young person, uh, she blessed me so much by just, at that time, just letting us as young people, telling us what to do. And so many of those seeds have moved forward. So I haven't, I don't think I've ever shared that story, but I just want mm. to tell you that. So mm, there's a there's direct it. connection. And yeah, yeah, no, I, that was, that was important because that was right at the time when I could have chosen, you know, uh, you know, the corporate world or whatever it is, you know, that kind of world when you're doing stuff and activism and seeing then um, how, how she was dedicated and all other people who were around her was, was a blessing. So just wanted to share it with you. But, you know, who is Dr. Bernice A. King, if folks don't know? Well, I first describe myself as a solutionist. And I say mm. that because for many years, um, I spent time focused on highlighting um, problems, uh, complaining about uh, the issues. And I find myself uh, now in the space of really thinking about how do you solve uh, these problems, you know, not just, you know, raise awareness about them, which is necessary in order to solve. Uh, but to really push people to start really thinking about, okay, what's the answer? 
And so in light of that, I consider myself a solutionist focused really on trying to create, you know, just, humane, equitable and peaceful world, which, you know, I call the beloved community. Mm. Um, and I'm, a, I'm an individual who <clears throat> is trying to emulate or should I say, trying to ensure that I reflect the, the character and the nature of, of Jesus, because that's my faith tradition. Um, you know, so I had to share those things because, you know, logically I'm the daughter of, you know, these famous people. Um, and then finally, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm passionate about, uh, seeing, um, you know, this world change and, and, and especially, um, the upliftment and empowerment of, uh, of our people, you know, the black community, we've suffered a long time. Um, and, um, you know, I believe, even though it may not look like it right now, I believe we're stepping into a new season um, of empowerment. Um, you know, there's a lot of stuff that is may not be televised that's happening behind the scenes uh, with our with our people and everything. You know, the revolution. You know, when you think of revolution, most people immediately come to mind, you know, some people with some rifles and guns ready to go to kind of war against something. But, you know, revolution, the way my father defined it, um, uh, is the difference between revolution and a revolt. For him, a revolt uh, is when you merely just move people. You know, you move them, they move out of, they just make some action. They may make some noise, Hmm. you know. But a revolution is when people and systems are changed. Um, And, you know, I'm just privy. I can't, you know, share everything, but I'm privy to um, different spaces where people are doing some things that are transformative uh, for the black community. And, you know, I think we will see the outcomes of this in the next three to five years. Um, And I'm speaking specifically. Uh, economically, because that's the place where um, uh, my father was focusing his energy as they opened up, quote unquote, uh, uh, America to our community because we were locked out. Uh, Now we have an opportunity to be a part of uh, the the exchange, Uh, not necessarily the system as the way people are, because we got people thinking outside of systems right now. (laughs) <laughs> in our community and doing some things and pulling some things together. Um, um, but, you know, I, I'm just happy to be a part of, of some of this, this work. Um, and, um, you know, I'm, I'm glad it's happening because it's, it's time. It, it really is. And I know, you know, I don't want to take up too much more time, but I know, you know, that there's uh, been a lot of emphasis and, and focus and, um, and push for, for reparations. And I do think it's an order. What it looks like uh, is a whole nother thing because people have various thoughts uh, and ideas about that. Um, and, um, you know, I even believe that that day will come. Again, mm-hmm. I don't know what it'll look like, um, but I do know that in order for it to happen, we've got to figure out how to get as close to possible on one page as possible. Let's talk. Let's talk about that. I mean, I, one, one of you that was great. I'm glad you said all that what you said, and I want to actually kind of go from there. You mentioned solutionists, which I love. One of the things that I call 
the young people of this generation, you know, this is the work that I do as president of the Hip Hop Caucus, uh, is working with young people. And the one thing about them that's different from the generation before is that before, you mentioned, they folks were would, would kind of take the phrase revolutionary. And I actually believe that this generation um, that's coming up now is solutionary. That they are they are very unique, so very close to solutionness, what you were describing. But let me kind of piggyback there for what you're talking about, because they also there's a little bit of right anxiety from their standpoint, because they feel that um, our their parents, their grandparents, in many cases, fought for equality in the 20th century, but they're now fighting, still fighting for equality but they're also fighting for existence in the 21st century. Um, so what are, your, what are your thoughts on that, about, about this generation and, and how they're viewing their role in the movement? First of all, let me say I get it. You know, when you're younger, it's, it's, it's very easy um, to uh, believe uh, that the world is worse than it is. Um, it's very easy to assume that, you know, uh, the negative is, is going to prevail. Um, <clears throat> and you, you kind of, you're, you're, you're lacking um, some, some more information and experience about life. Um, uh, and, and I'm saying that because, you know, um, yeah, each generation feels the same way about the previous generation, each generation of young people. There's something mm-hmm. we can point out thought-wise thought with the previous generation that they didn't understand, they don't get it, et cetera. Something happens as you live where you begin to understand uh, some things that come with life. Like That's my real. mother said, struggle is a never-ending <laughs> process. Freedom is never mm-hmm. really won. You, you earn it and win it in every generation. I think when you grow up, because we raise our children, you know, um, to kind of, you know, try to go for whatever their dreams or their ambitions are. That's kind of nation we live in. Um, and then you run into this thing called systemic racism, you know, um, or you end up being raised in these circumstances and situations where you feel caught and trapped because of, you know, the conditions that are around you. Um, but one thing that I can say is they were also fighting for existence back then. Mm. I mean, back then, um, think about it, you know, yeah. any, in, on any given day, literally, um, any one of us, regardless of our standing in life, um, could be lynched, um, you know, could be wrongly accused. I mean, Emmett Till, perfect example. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, although we have some of those kinds of things happening today at the magnitude that it was happening back then and the terror, the constant terror, uh, and not having the possibility of, of being a person who could have your voice heard through, through, the, through our democracy, through voting. Um, being absent, it was even worse, or not hmm. being in some of these rooms, <laughs> you know, because we were totally outside, period. So I would say I get it. 
I, I understand there's this thing, but at the root of all of that is still, you know, you're talking about the survival. What is it tied to when you think about, you know, uh, the, the relationship between law enforcement and our community and the issue of survival there? We're still talking about issues of inequity, you know, um, because uh, the our communities are deprived of so many things. Um, you know, when I say our, I don't want to make it seem like a broad stroke, uh, mm -hmm. because there are some individuals that are of, you know, um, African-American descent that are black in America that descended from the enslaved, um, who, you know, who live in a variety of types of communities. But for the most part, the communities that are predominantly black, we know they're policed differently. You know, that's, that's, that's part of the the, the white supremacist system that we've all inherited, even white people have inherited that system. Um, and so that's the same thing that our people were fighting against back then that they're fighting against today and trying to survive. You know, that's the, the, think about the bus protest. They were fighting for dignity. If you talk translate existence, it's really hey, I am a human being. I live on this earth. I exist on this earth. Regard my personhood. Respect me. That's the essence of that. That's what Rosa Parks, that's why she sat down on that, on that bus and refused to get up, more importantly, because she said, you know, I'm fighting for existence. Recognize me. Honor me. Respect me. Just like you do that, with the white folks that come on this bus, do the same thing for me. Hmm. So I don't know if I agree with it's a little different. Um, I would say there there's some similarities uh, there, but the mindset changes everything. Her mindset that day was like, no more. I'm going to sit here in the strength of who I am. I'm not going to go to that person's level, but I'm going to sit here in the strength of who I am. And I'm going to believe that by me sitting here, something's going to be different. Let, let me ask you a question on that. As you know, my path, I've been uh, arrested a few times, <laughs> fighting fighting the good fight, and uh, particularly fighting against uh, unjust wars, uh, mm -hmm. fighting for issues of uh, trying to stop police brutality. Um, fighting for issues of climate justice and gender justice, and done it in a very nonpartisan way. I've been, been arrested right. outside of the Bush White House, the Trump White House, and the Obama White House. And so, but every single time I've done it with the spirit of understanding nonviolence. And I know that mm -hmm. you advocate for that as well. Um, so what is, from your standpoint, nonviolence, Three six five. So I know that you're advocating. And what does nonviolent training and education look like for a new generation? So let me kind of say why we at the King Center uh, call it nonviolence three six five. Then I'll give you the definition, mm. and then I'll talk about what the, the training and education looks like. So um, my father talked about nonviolence as a way of life. Uh, for him, mm. it became that. He didn't get an opportunity uh, to um, further uh, educate about that or demonstrate it 
because they were in the middle of something very intense. And so for for them at that time, nonviolence took on the form um, of what people saw publicly. It took on the form of, of a nonviolent direct action organization. But that is not nonviolence as uh, taught by or lived by Martin King or Coretta Scott King. So nonviolence 365 means every day of the week, you know. And with that in mind, our definition of nonviolence and looking at the life of, of Dr. King, Mrs. Coretta Scott King, and, and, and those who ascribe to that way um, is that it is a love-centered way of thinking, speaking, acting, and engaging that leads to personal, cultural, and societal transformation. So you have to think about it, a love-centered way. So love becomes the fuel from which you operate as you engage people, as you speak about people, as you talk to people. You don't hurl insults. That's not the goal, because the goal is you want to create, ultimately, you want to create a pathway to a beloved community, which everybody is a part of. We think a beloved community means my, my kind, like me. And in the beloved community, there's conflict. There are differences in the beloved community. Um, but the beloved community is fueled by fueled by by love. It's fueled, it's, you know, at the, the engine being reconciliation. Um, and reconciliation, unlike some people who believe it to be, let's all get along. That's not what it is. Uh, because part of reconciliation, that pathway is you got to do some repairing. You got to do some restoration. And you got to really do some real work on trying to mend the broken pieces after the fact. So when we do our education and training, right now we have an actual self-learning um, 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 experience, uh, an e-learning experience for people to go onto the KingCenterInstitute.org and they can go through it. It's about 16 or 18 hours and begin to better understand um, what this really was for Dr. King and those in the movement. I mean, you know, it is a philosophy. It's a way of thinking. You know, um, and you ground yourself in those six principles of nonviolence, you know, which are very hard. Let me tell you, when you start thinking about nonviolence seeks to defeat injustice and not people. That's hard for a lot of people, because how do you separate people from the injustice? They're the ones doing it. But you you always have in mind that that person, regardless of their actions, are still a part of humanity. They still have personhood that has to be regarded and respected. I know we're taught if you respect, if you disrespect me, I'm going to disrespect you. But daddy elevated it because he believed that he had the capacity to cause people to feel a sense of uh, shame in their consciousness and, and wake up to the fact that what they're doing is harmful and, and hurtful um, and is unjust. Now, there may be some people who never wake up. But a nonviolent movement in particular is much bigger than the two parties or the parties on either side of the issue. There's an entire world out there kind of on the sideline looking in. And you're also trying to win them into uh, your struggle. You're trying to get as many adherents. You know, I don't like the word allies because to me it suggests hmm. I got a problem that you come to help me with as opposed to. This is a problem that is threatening us as humanity. 
And so I don't like using that word. Some people call co-conspirators. I kind of look at it as, look, we are part of a diverse family. These are things that are threatening, you know, our bonds as a family. And we have to fight together against it. You know, so it's just as much your responsibility as mine. As mine. Um, and if I'm in more of a vulnerable place, you may have a higher level of responsibility. Because we know in just real family, when you got somebody in the family and they're dealing with drugs, the stronger have to bear the infirmity of the weak. Mm-hmm. So privileged position makes you stronger. So, and, and not that we are weak by nature, but weak in terms of the circumstances that have put us in these vulnerable places and not allowed us to be our best selves, not because of something fundamentally wrong in us. And so that's why I say there's a responsibility, but perhaps the greatest responsibility. So in this training, we try to connect the dots for people to first understand what is violence, because we think violence is physical. By the time it gets to that place, you know, you're talking about, you know, some very, uh, d- damaging, destructive stuff. We want to teach people how to um, preempt that, how we not create a rise, how we not go from a regular conflict to something extreme that's physical and destructive. You know, so we want people to understand that. We want people to understand that violence comes not just physically. Violence can be in the way you think about uh, people. Um, right. and because our thinking determines a lot about outcome. You know, Everything starts in thought. You know, as a person thinks, so is he. So your thinking is very critical. So if you're thinking, I want to destroy this person, then all of your energy is going to be focused on that. And you'll never get to the end result of a just society uh, because that's not in your thinking. So we try to help people with understanding that it starts in the thinking. It's in our verbalization. How can I? How can I reach the same outcome and and not have to hurl insults or meet you, you know, fire for fire? Like that is say, hey, can I put out hate? You know, how do I, like I asked the person one day, I said, is it necessary for the goal that you're trying to reach at this moment, for the outcome you're seeking, is it necessary to call that person a racist? Hmm. I just, I'm just asking the question. I'm not saying... Yes or no, I'm just raising the question. What benefit is calling them that going to contribute to the outcome? So that's, that's a p- perfect example. So we try to help people look at how do I still tell truth, speak truth to power and not compromise that, but do it in a way uh, where you are not demeaning, demoralizing people and you are not letting them dictate the terms of how this conversation engagement is going to be because all they're doing is luring you into a, a fight and a, con- a deeper conflict and we don't know where that ends up. And at the end of the day, it feels good with the adrenaline rush, but it's like, what did I just accomplish? Well, I told them off. Well, what does that have to do with, if your thinking was, I want to get justice, not for a person, but I want justice for a community. I want justice for a society. I want righteousness in our world. Is it going to get us there? So, do, you know, these mm. are the kind of things that we make. The, the training gets people to thinking. I tell people when you start in this training, you come in trying to fix the world. And people come from different angles. 
Some people is we got to get these white people straight. Some people is, you know, I'm, I'm trying to deal with, you know, the, the, the war economy or whatever, poverty or whatever. But it first starts with you looking in the mirror. So it starts with you. That's, you know, it starts with me. But it's not about me because it's much broader than just, you know, your personal concern. We are interconnected and interrelated in this world. Um, Mm. And no matter how much these people over here are doing things that are harmful and damaging, we got to figure this out. We got to solve this, 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 you know, this, you know, fire, you know, it's like, you know, not just friction, but, you know, this is not even tension, this, this damaging stuff. Um, So that's part of it. We define nonviolence. You know, we help people understand the difference between violence and conflict. Then we take them to the principles and steps because so many people are doing activism work. But daddy and them had a, a grounding in that philosophy that I told you about, those principles, you know, that way of thinking that has to accompany every step of the way as you are involved in a nonviolent campaign or if you're involved in a conflict. It may not even be something societal. It can be something, you know, that's a conflict interpersonally, you know, or between groups. Uh, so that that's, that's that's how we unpack. And then, you know, we do something around mobilization, organization or coordinating and collaborating because we do a lot of collaborating. I don't know if we coordinate <laughs> well together, but we do a lot of collaborate. Well, we, we got to make sure we got to make sure that we uh what you doing with the hip hop caucus? So we got we, we got to collaborate some more <laughs> in in the future on on yes. some of these on some of these things. I actually want to just so you know I, I want you to talk to young people because this is a very important piece here because I know and you know we have real talk here in the coolest show. I know that there are times when we are fighting for mm-hmm. liberation for our people that that is seen as violence. That when I have been out here and doing things for the after Hurricane Katrina, or I've seen young folks, we heard recently that when young people were fighting for the, the movement for Black Lives, that, that Trump was literally calling for them to be shot. That's now has yeah. come out in the, in the record. Um, mm-hmm. So when we're now in this stage, when we are fighting for our liberation, we're fighting for our freedom. And just the act of that is seen as violence to other communities. How can we be nonviolent in a space that is so violent to us fighting for our liberation? Well, it goes back to your philosophy. I mean, I'm going to always be nonviolent. You know, um, what I will say as a caveat, that's my commitment, period. Um, who knows when you're under certain pressures, how you respond. But I believe if you're seeded with something very strongly, it shows up. Hmm. So I want to just say that caveat. I can't say 100% that if something came against me, I wouldn't be violent. But what I can say is I'm seeded heavily uh, with nonviolence um, and with a love orientation that that probably will show up quicker than the, the other. Um, but, um, you know, it's part of the part of the problem is we don't have cohesion. Hmm. The reason they were able to stand to, get to, to, to be nonviolent in the movement is because they had a cohesion. They had each other. 
they were committed collectively to nonviolence and strategy. And they had leadership that helped to message all of that Hmm. and to provide the necessary communication to keep the morale up, you know, to not feed the violent energy, but to make them believe that you can overcome and collectively we're together. You're not out there alone because there are a lot of people, they feel like they're alone, even though a lot of people are out there. People are feeling alone because there's no cohesion. Um, and there's, and, and I would argue there's not really a strategy or a plan. I think people want change and I think people are, you know, hammering away in various silos doing things. But the Nehemiah effect is not occurring where he was able to bring all of those together and cohesively they worked in different places of strength and influence, you know, uh, collectively and in a coordinated fashion to build up those walls of Jerusalem that had been broken down. Um, And so we got a lot, you know, a lot of activity going on, but we haven't really pulled together cohesively and and also agreed to something. People agreed to commit to nonviolence. You know, it wasn't like... um, you know, it wasn't like uh, it was just, you know, haphazard. There, there, was, there was an agreement. There, there were things that people had to sign up to. And there were, there were things that said, look, you can be a part of this, but realize the outcome we're looking for. If you can't subscribe to this, then let's put you over here and do this part. Because we need people on the front line who can maintain the nonviolent posture. Like you said, when the work you do, is you, you try to take that nonviolent posture. But if somebody's a hothead, they don't need to be out there because what they do is they undermine the struggle and they cause the narrative to shift and change. But you have a we have a power in cohesion against violence, period. Um, I mean, it's studied. I, I, I can't remember her name. Shinworth has studied movements around the world, violent revolutions or revolts, as I would say, and nonviolence. And she has documented proof that the nonviolent ones have more of a favorable outcome and more sustainability. The problem with violence is it diminishes the army because the average person ain't going to want to go get into a violent conflict and fight. As much as, you know, we big and bad, most of us going to run away from that in the end. Now, there'll be some left, of course. But the majority ain't. And again, it's deeper than just the people that are there. You got a whole bunch of folks that we need to pull into this, you know, and we want them to join. If they see it's violent, they ain't go, they're not going to join. They ain't going to speak up because now the narrative for them is the violence. They can't even hear what you're trying to do, <laughs> let, alone, let alone try to figure out how to help. So, you go, I know people say we don't need no leaders. You know, we're a leaderless movement. That was my grandmother's, that was, I'm just not my grandmother's movement. But until we honor that movement hmm. by recognizing you wouldn't even have what you have right now, we're not for your grandmama and granddaddy. You saying all that, but do you realize that the First Amendment right was legitimated under the civil rights movement? The First Amendment right to protest was legitimated under the civil rights movement. It was the first movement to give legitimacy to that right 
in the Constitution. So the very thing you're doing that gives us the right to do these things, your grandmama and them did that. You know, so they paved the way for a lot of stuff. The fact that when you're not in that movement mode and you're hanging out with your friends in some restaurant, some mall, you know what I'm saying? The, the fact that you got white folks consuming your music the way they're consuming it, all that kind of stuff came because of your grandmama's movement. Hmm. So don't discount it, honor it, and then extract the nuggets and the lessons from it and incorporate it into what you can add to it. So that's the way I said that goes back to that struggles never in the process, meaning every generation has had the fight for freedom. Not just black people, just all over the world. Every generation has had to fight for freedom. And so we have a responsibility collectively to fight for that freedom in this generation and to realize we're connected to previous struggles. And we got to bring forward what is essential and critical from those previous struggles to show up in these current struggles because you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. There are too many valuable things. People are not just still talking about Dr. King because nonviolence is not credible and didn't work. They, they, I mean, he's, he's being talked about all over the world. People are still studying him all over the world. They're saying something, something is powerful about this. And Gandhi, who we know he got his tactics from, prophesied that a black, uh, uh, the black, a black person would introduce it to the world. Hmm. Now, he didn't know who, wow. of course, because he had met with a lot of our black um, leaders at that time, um, from um, Howard Thurman. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, I'm not sure if Byatt Rustin got a chance to visit with him. There was a whole, Reverend Dr. Benjamin Elijah Mays, a host of them that went to visit with Gandhi. And these are people who influenced Martin Luther King Jr., ultimately. But Gandhi had no idea that the year that he was assassinated, he said this a few years before, but the year that he was assassinated was the same year Martin Luther King Jr. graduated from Morehouse College and was on his way to Crozier where he started studying intensely Mahatma Gandhi. Hmm. You know, one thing I like, Dr. Bernice King, that you use, you use social media. And uh, <laughs> you're pretty active on that, actually. <laughs> you, uh, I, I'll say this, you know, the revolution um, may not be televised, but it definitely will be uploaded. You will definitely put that thing on Twitter <laughs> <laughs> and you will share your message. But it's also, it's not uncommon for you to quote tweet people who use your father's words out of context. I know on our Earth Day of this year, you tweeted, this was your tweet. You said, quote, my father did not dream of a colorblind society. He right. dreamed of a world house where the terrors of white supremacy, colonialism, and imperialism are eradicated. And of a beloved community where extreme materialism, poverty, racism, and war are not horrifying blights against humanity, end quote. So what, with all the things going on, do you think people have a holistic understanding of your father's work and where he was going? Um, most people don't. Um, I, I would even argue that even people who have, quote unquote, read him don't. Because, you know, it's like the Bible. You know, very few people have read the entire Bible. 
were Christians. Mm. Uh, you know, the uh, uh, um, Quran, probably very few that is, uh, Muslims have read the Quran. Um, it, you know, we have a tendency to, you know, find the spaces and places that fit us. Um, and you know how that goes. You, you take something out of the, you know, you take something out of the Bible and then you, <laughs> you know, you can preach it and you can preach it in context. You can eisegete it or you can exegete it. Come um, on now. Come on now. <laughs> <laughs> so people do that with my daddy. I mean, um, I, at one point I used to get very angry about it, really like pissed off. Um, until I realized, wait a minute, they take God out of context, they take the Bible out of context. My dad, my dad can't be above God and, and um, you know, the Bible. And so I um, recognize and accept that, but just as I do in my faith tradition, I have a responsibility to lay out the truth and let it sit there. You know, um, I won't ever be able to, quote unquote, correct everybody. Um, but the opportunities I have, I try to use that. And I don't ever want to get in a back and forth with truth. I told somebody the other day, and I know this sounds very weird and strange, but I said, truth does not need help. I believe mm. what my father said, you know, that when he was quoting somebody else, when he said unearned, I'm mean, not unearned, um, truth crushed to the earth will rise again. Uh, he also and his, his actual quote was unarmed truth and unconditional love will have the last word in reality. I believe that truth has a power, no matter what people try to do to it, undermine it, strip it. And that's why you have to always speak it. So my responsibility is when there's something said that's misappropriated is to make sure that I let the truth sit there in the instances where I have the knowledge, because I won't ever see all of it, you know, and um, you never can address all of it, but as much as possible, because the more truth is spoken consistently over time, it's going to triumph. So that's the way, you know, I handle it. And again, I always think past the person who said it. I think too many times we get caught up in that person. You know, the other, you know, we have the other people. We got to find the other. We got to find an enemy. I, I'm not interested in an enemy. You know, I'm mm. trying to, you know, as, as a second principle of nonviolence, I'm trying to um, win friendship and understanding. And it's, it's not about that other person who may be totally misled, misappropriated, because there's a whole nother group out there that's tuning in and they need to know the truth. You know, uh, we have just a little bit of time for a couple more questions. I just want to want to get your vision of some things here. And I, I kind of want to share with you, you know, I do this work around climate justice. And, and I just want to thank you and your team over there at the, uh, you know, the Martin Luther King Center for Nonviolence Social Change, the King Center for obviously opening the doors to the work that we do around environmental justice and connecting the dots there. So I want to thank you for that. Um, but I want to ask you this story for you about this, your, your vision of the future you're fighting for. But I want to paint this picture for you. Um, you know, one of the hardest things for me was knowing that a lot of the, particularly fossil fuel industry, that their business plan 
means a death sentence for our community. That our children get asthma and cancer, emphysema, because we know that 68% of Black people live within 30 miles of a coal-fired power plant and are breathing in that pollution. Um, they literally, in many cases, can't breathe. Um, you know, one of the hardest things for me was literally doing the funeral of the children mm-hmm. who have died because of asthma. And in some cases, watching the mothers try to climb into the casket. Um, and then seeing so much destruction in our community, it pushes me as a person of faith, as a Christian, as a minister, as an activist. It, 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 it causes me nightmare to see the destruction to my people. But I pray that I know that that organized people beats organized money every single time. I believe that, and I, be, I have to yeah. believe that. But what's the vision of the future you're fighting for? Well, I mean, I mean, I said it earlier. I mean, it really is this this beloved community where you have people who are committed together um, to overcome these things, to fight against these things in a way um, that doesn't seek to cancel, destroy people, but really seeks to lay a foundation for people to be uncomfortable with what they're doing, uh, whether they're a policymaker um, or whether they're a person who um, have been victimized themselves uh, by a lifestyle that causes them to be full of hate um, and, and they're doing things um, that, are, that are harmful. Uh, to humanity and and groups of people, um, and so for me, that's that's really what it's about. What you're talking about, as we know, is what we've been faced with forever for eons, um, coming against these um, <laughs> uh, these uh, demons um, of greed and selfishness and elitism and arrogance, um, and power and control. Uh, that's really what we're fighting. Um, and people's lack of true love. You know, the Bible tells people say to love money. Money is not the evil thing. Money is a good thing. Cause the Bible says money answers with all things. You know, it's the love of money. Hmm. That's the root of all this stuff. And so how do we effectively um, in this vision of the beloved community, create a world where we can share the resources in a fair and equitable manner and think about how we um, ensure that we are not doing hurtful and harmful things to groups of people because we're so in love with money, but we're so in love with, when I say love, I'm not talking about romantic love, but we're in love with people, we're in love with, you know, the personhood and, and wanting the, 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 the dignity and the value of the person to be uplifted. So we dare not make a decision like that. We find, you know, an, another a way or a different path that we open our minds. You know, for me, most people are living below their, their mental capacity that are in decision making. Smart people, we're all smart, been educated in schools, but there's a higher level of thinking that we don't even tap into that could create a world where we're all safe, secure, 
protected, um, um, where we all have the things that we need uh, to be, um, you know, a human being from food, right, right kind of shelter, clothing, all this stuff. We don't have to exploit people and none of that. But we're operating in such a low vibration. So the question becomes, how do we pull together our energies? Perhaps, unfortunately, in this manner, we're going to have to start with the younger generation. And I know the, the, the power of the climate movement that I've observed, and I'm not as astute in this area, and I want to learn more, so maybe I'll learn more from you, is Definitely. that it's filled with young people. Mm-hmm. You know? And, and so they are going to transform these things. And we have to undergird and make sure that the, the value system and that higher level of thinking, that higher uh, place of vibration, people are operating from. And they don't have to operate from fear. That's another thing that's driving people. It's fear. You know, because the opposite of love is not hate, it's fear. You know, we know in our faith tradition, perfect love casts out fear. So how do we perfect love in the universe to all these people who are exploiting people, you know, these power grabs, you know, that are just just literally destroying and killing people. Well, stop doing it. Something has to reach them. And if we start early and kids understand what love looks like and shows up like in, in society, in the marketplace, in relationships, in corporate America, in Congress, I think we can see a change, but it is a long game. Um, And there has to be, again, a cohesive um, group of people, a critical mass who move in a syncopated manner in this direction. Otherwise, we're just going to keep doing it. And I close with this quote of my father. He said something so powerful for me, and I've been meditating on it, and I don't have all my revelation from it, but he said, when computers and machines, and you can translate that to this day, and you AI, whatever you want to call it, um, virtual reality, um, you know, even social media, uh, whatever you want to call it, but computers and machines, profit motives, and property rights, you know, gentrification, all that, are more important than people then the giant triplets of what you just mentioned earlier of racism, extreme materialism, and militarism are incapable of being conquered. So I don't care how much work we are, they're doing. If we don't shift our priorities and our values to regarding the personhood of every individual, no matter who they are, how they identify, where they are from, then it, it, we're not going to cover any of this stuff. We're just going to kind of be like, <laughs> you know, just be doing work. It's like busy work, but ain't getting nowhere. Dr. Bernice King, how can people support you and stay in contact with you and, this, and, and the King Center? Yeah, they can, um, they can go to thekingcenter.org, um, find out about our work. Um, and as I said, I invite everybody to, to take our e-learning nonviolence 365. It helps to, you know, ground you and, and provide you with a, um, a, a manner 
of really engaging life at every level, including these social justice issues, but also in your workplace, you know, in your in your relationships. Um, so you can get to it at the kingcenter.org or the kingcenterinstitute.org. I have a children's book out called It Starts With Me. They can pick that up at the King Center too. Um, and it's about be love and how a little girl by the name of Maura can help people, uh, young people, um, take the journey to open their minds and their hearts to let love drive the, you know, the way they speak and the way they act um, and uh, engage. And, and then uh, they can follow me on Twitter, Bernice King, um, um, Instagram, IG, um, Facebook. I'm under another name. You know, I do have a private Bernice A. King, but my public face is Be A King because my name is Bernice Albertine King. So Be A King. I'm telling people to be a king. Now, I know people want to use queen, but I intentionally say king because a queen, a woman can be a king, too, because king is not a, a pronoun for me. It's, it's more of a state of mind, uh, positioning in your state of mind. Uh, and so you can be a king. Uh, so be a king, Facebook. Uh, and then all of the platforms for the King Center. That's where they can uh, find us. Well, thank you so much for being with me. I started off this conversation, conversation telling you about how much your mom meant to me personally doing activism. I end this conversation telling you that my uh, youngest son was born the same time as your father, and I named him King Yearwood. So, oh wow! I want to let you know that. And well, thank well, you tell for King, King Yearwood. I said, hey. I will. I'll definitely yeah. tell that. Our guest today is Dr. Bernice A. King, CEO of the Martin Luther King Jr. Center for Nonviolent Social Change, the King Center. And I am Rev Yearwood, your host of The Coolest Show. Thank you so much, my sister. Thank you. Appreciate you. Like what you heard on this episode? Make sure you subscribe to the podcast. Follow us at Think 100 Climate and at Hip Hop Caucus on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Visit thecoolestshow.com where you can take action for climate justice right now. You can also learn more about this podcast and donate to Think 100%, which is a non-profit project. Thank you for listening and all power to the people. It's the coolest show you know. It's the coolest show you know.